Happy Tuesday and welcome to the Not Boring Podcast. We have a special one today. I'm here with Clint Kisker, who is the purchaser of the Power to the Person NFT that we sold about a week ago. So, you know, we're here today because I wanted to understand, first of all, thank Clint. Second of all, understand kind of just the psychology that goes into why, you know, you buy a piece of digital media on the internet and then dive into how Clint's thinking about Web3, which is fascinating. And already one of the benefits to me of this whole thing is that we've gotten to meet and I've gotten to learn more about the media business. So Clint, can you introduce yourself? Hello world. Um, very happy to have been a part of this. Obviously anyone listening to this knows the value you get from the work that Packy puts in, but, and I'm brand new to it. Honestly, Power to the Person was the first introduction to Not Boring, but as I started to learn more, and as I've said to Packy, part of the value of this to me is specifically the, the Power to the Person essay unlocked a whole set of thinking for me about, you know, where do creators, and I come from the traditional entertainment, film and TV and podcast comics sort of world, but where do, how do entertainers take advantage of the, the web three of it all? And so there was that like immediate value, but the more I learned about Packy and the more I learned about the, the process of creating Not Boring and specifically the more I thought about the, 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 the intent and the thoughtfulness that went into the creation of this NFT in particular, the fact that the ideas of you know, a human can be authenticated digitally in a single asset and then passed on and value created along the chain for all the participants in a collective expression of ideas in the first instance. And then in the second instance, just that a human was thoughtful enough to say, okay, this thing I created that as a value has aspects of it that were contributed by other people. And so I wanna be intentional about creating something that represents that value going forward for them as well, those two things. And the last thing of course, is that you know the more you understand about the process of creating not boring, the more you think about how much it takes to actually deliver this value to folks, you know, that combination of things made it, made it an obvious thing to do to support what you're doing and to learn, honestly. And, and you know, part of what we were talking about uh, just briefly before is this idea that, you know, now we're in a space where if you're not just fully open, aperture wide open to learning absolutely everything from every possible verifiable place that, you know, contributes incrementally to your understanding of what's next and how to apply it day to day to what you're learning and doing. I think you're not playing the game. Like that's the, you know, that's your, that that's the game right now. And it's a little overwhelming a lot of times. And it's why I think, you know, newsletters and, 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 you know, morning brews, another one that I love, you know, like the idea of these things that are, you know, hacks to understanding what's valuable and, and how to direct your mind and your attention are, are just extraordinarily valuable. So I was really happy to do it. Well, I mean, as, as I told you offline, like I really, really appreciated it. It is still so much of this whole experience blows my mind, but the fact that, you know, I wrote something it's free online and this is the criticism of NFTs generally is like, Oh, you can just look at it at a version of that picture. This that essay that's free online that you, you know, it, it, was meaningful enough that you were willing to kind of put down your, your hard-earned ETH to, to support it and to support the work of, you know, 26 other people. And some of it goes to charity and some of it goes to the people who help share the, the auction. So like, I think maybe this is the most people supported by an NFT purchase in the history of, of NFTs. So just thank you for that. I'd love to learn a little bit more just the behind the scenes for people who haven't kind of bid on an NFT auction or haven't won an NFT. Like, Walk me through the day. So I guess I announced in the morning that we're doing this thing and then kept it open for 12 hours. 
when did you decide that you were interested in it? And then kind of what does that process look like? So it, it starts with the idea that I've organized my own personal day to, you know, digest as much as I possibly can in the first like two hours of it, just in a quiet mental space. And so that came in and, you know, I have looked at about, I guess I'm sort of four or five months into understanding, really understanding like the role of blockchain and what that means for cryptocurrencies and what that means for, you know, DeFi, but also ultimately what that means for you know, general application to all businesses going forward. So I got sort of into that about four months ago. And in doing that, I sort of bought, you know, Bitcoin and, and ETH and sort of just so I could have a, some stake in it and have a, a, you know, a real reason to go learn about it so I could understand how to manage it better. And so I, that first couple hours of the day, seeing that that was an opportunity, I had also looked in the past at you know, like Rick Rubin looked at, you know, whether or not to, you know, to, to sell his, one of his first tweets, which is a, actually a really cool one. It's, it's, it's microphone check one, two from Rick Rubin, which I was like, oh, that's a cool one. Like I, that, that, like that kind of, so I'd, I'd, I, yeah, it, right. Like I was like, yeah, that's an awesome one. And, and I, so I'd done the, you know, getting the, the ETH wallet to be, you know, to be able to do it from that point. So I, in some sense, I'd already been prepared to try to buy one eventually. And then this landed and I was like, this had so many aspects of what was interesting to me to learn more about that. It was, it was, it was clear. Oddly enough, I was, I've also, I was, I was bidding on it while I was trying, I was in the sauna. And so <laughs> I was trying to like, I was trying, I was trying to, I was trying to time it so I could get out and make the fight, like make the final bit, not realizing that there was like a whole, like you guys run you know, YouTube live talking about it. I was like, oh, I guess I'm just going to, so, so I, 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 I was not the highest bidder for a period of time. And then I was like, all right, nope, definitely going to do this. This is, it's too important to learn more about this. It's, there's so many aspects of this that are appealing that I just, I just pulled, pulled the trigger, but it was a, it was sort of a, it, it was a day long kind of, I got kind of excited. I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to go do this. Like the second I saw it in the morning, I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to do that one. Oh, cool. And I was thinking like, I wonder if how, you know, yeah, I was like, I wonder how this, uh, you know, you've seen some of these things get up to like enormous dollars. And I know how much of the community around you respects what you do and respects the work of all the people that were involved. So I was like, oh, this could get, if it gets like bizarro crazy, I, I, won't, I won't do it. But like, it, it was, it was, it was well worth doing it for sure. That's, that's amazing. So I, I think for everybody listening, one of the most exciting parts about this to me was getting to understand why Web3 is, is so important to, to how you're thinking now. Can you tell us a little bit about where you came from and then how you're thinking about what's next and how Web3 plays into all of that? Sure, sure. So I came up in, in traditional film, yeah, producing, co-financing, financing film, and and eventually evolving into working at Legendary, where it was focused on more of the sort of next generation of stuff, VR, AR, you know, digital digital video and the sort of all categories all other than traditional film and TV, which got me focused on the question of, you know, as film and TV evolves, what's next for not just the consumer experience, but also how do creators continue to build value for themselves? Something Peggy and I've talked about a little bit, which is this, the, how important storytelling really is to, you know, the fabric, certainly the fabric of, of my own personal life, my, you know, growing up watching movies, sitting in the movie theater, Twizzlers, popcorn, the, the, the experience of what that really means in terms of building those, those like rich bonds. And so part of what became really interesting to me is technology is just moving faster than infrastructure can keep up with. That's very clear. And so the question that became interesting to me is how do you empower storytellers to own and create value for themselves 
through the at the speed of technology, sort of how it's how it's changing. And so I co-founded a company in 2016 called Madison Wells Media with Gigi Pritzker. And the premise of that company was to create a collective set of infrastructure, a platform where creators could go, creators of film and TV and comics and podcasts and other media to be able to build their IP in such a way that it generated leverage for themselves downstream and allowed us to own a piece of that IP along the way. And so part of that is a result of the fact that the, the SVOD system, as effective and powerful and great as it is from a consumer perspective, what it means for a, a, an individual creator is unlike a Jerry Seinfeld or a George Lucas or a, or a Steven Spielberg, who used to have an idea, generate a piece of content, and by windowing all the way down to the MVPD who sold it to a subscriber, they aggregated, in some cases, multi-generational wealth. The SVOD system doesn't allow that because it's a fee. It's, a, it's, a, it's in some cases, a, a very high fee. And ultimately, because more volume of dollars gets spent in the SVOD system going forward than would otherwise have been the case in the traditional film and TV system, more individual humans will make more money, but they will not, but there's a ceiling across the whole top of it. And the flip side of that ceiling from an ownership, from a value creation perspective is the SVOD system also by and large then owns your IP. So if you think about it from the perspective of like Walt Disney, like if Disney thought of Mickey Mouse right now, he couldn't build Disney the way he built Disney previously, because to do that through the film and television system that he did, would that trade now would be to give up that IP. And so that's a long way of, of saying what is what we viewed as necessary was the creation of, an, of a platform that allowed for more of the leverage to be in the hands of the creators by virtue of having proven that IP in a place outside of film or television. And so that was sort of what I think of as the web 2.0 version of this. Just one um, quick question to jump in there. So is that why, for example, like people knock Netflix and say that Netflix doesn't have really strong IP that they can do much with? Is it because the people who have valuable IP aren't selling it in Netflix because of that dynamic or is, am I missing? I think what there? you're finding, well, if you look at like, if you look at like Amazon with Lord of the Rings, or you look at some of the things that have been popular, what Netflix has done and why I think people think that it's potentially a winner take all market is because Netflix has built so much volume of content to appeal to so many people in so many different ways. If you look at like Lupin or, or, or you know, any of these things that have, that, have, that have started to really be household conversations, those weren't the same things that we would have said were sort of you know, top of mind from a, you know, from a premium content perspective, even a couple of years ago. And so I think historically the trick was if you can generate an idea that makes it sufficiently interesting to be a theatrical film, it had the potential for a whole wide stream of things that occurred after that. That has all changed so that what's more relevant now is do people do a broad enough scope of people like the idea and is it interesting enough? And what we haven't really seen yet is something that started in uh, organically in Netflix. There is something we did at MWM that I think has really started to test this, which is an animated show called The Dragon Prince that has has is you know now the first three seasons were up. Now they're doing you know several more. There are efforts to make original IP appealing to very specific groups within each one of those platforms. But what our, I think our traditional mindset is that, you know, you can name, you know, the Marvel and Pixar and Star Wars and the, the IP, when you think of IP, you think of those sort of things. And I think traditionally you think of that because it corresponds to a theatrical release. So what's happening is the construct of, you know, premium IP from a video programming perspective, the very nature of it is changing completely. And so what used to be the ability to sort of like build franchises was a function of how many people you get to see a theatrical film first and everything else happened after that. 
that is that is gone. One of the people that you know that that you paid out by purchasing the NFT that I linked to is Lee Jin, who wrote the follow up to Kevin Kelly's "A Thousand True Fans," which is about a hundred true fans. If you can find a hundred people who are willing to pay ten times more than those thousand people would have paid you, you can make a really good living off of that. Is it something similar happening in media where it's these kind of smaller niche audiences who get really passionate about a particular set of IP? Yes, that exact construct is happening within each one of the SVOD ecosystems. So if you think about it from a creator economy perspective, it's to do mostly with, you know, video or audio or text that's, you know, like you'll get Food 52, for example. And the Turning Group has been amazing at doing this. They've found some of the most interesting, really authentic connections between a creator and an audience that have real business built around them in a bottom of the funnel way and have built around that in a, in a really interesting way. But that dynamic where there's a sort of what I think of as like an authentic authority at the center of some creation and a concentric circle out from that is, you know, the fan base and the, the true audience. And I don't know if it's a hundred or a thousand, but it's that core group. That is, that's sort of the taxonomy of IP and a following now. And that exists in like a giant cluster within the SVOD ecosystem. It's a series of those all over the e ecosystem. And, in, and so the challenge now in, you know, in a Web3 context becomes, what does a creator need to be able to really you know, create not only that sort of first concentric circle out, but also expand that in such a way that things like Beast Burger works, right? Or things that you know, a more direct to consumer, a, a business that doesn't depend specifically on the creation of whatever that sort of you know, original content was. That's the interesting question. And it's not an immediately obvious one. You know, there's so many things that are, that's, that's, the, and that's been the journey that I've been on is trying to figure out what the answer to that question is. So a lot of people, myself included, have come into Web3 by saying this big, crazy, maybe paradigm shift, maybe, you know, big platform shift after mobile thing is happening. What are the interesting things that, that you might be able to do with this? You've come at it from the perspective of, here's the job that I've done. Here's the world that I've been in. It's changing. This set of tools might be able to help. So how does, how has that journey gone from the perspective of going into it with like almost a, a challenge to solve? Well, the, it, 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 the challenge specifically arises from the observation that the cost to execute the platform that we were building with the administration and the complexity of deal making and the the complexity frankly of just payments right like the if you have ultimately we ended up with you know 3 or 400 creators on the platform in various ways just getting people paid right getting you know thinking about it from the perspective of one aspect of it was you know game publishing and one aspect of it was live theater the infrastructure of those two things is completely different so to try to understand how to efficiently build a system that serves all those creators well you know we had experimented with things like distributed autonomy right and like things that you try to you know cross-functional teams things that you try to do from like a human capital perspective to address that but the cost is just prohibitively high like it's just very very high and still you end up with a play a business model that requires that one or two of those things you know become the walking dead or become you know, something that's large enough to support the cost of the overall thing. And so the problem that arose was this purely a, a cost and functional administration problem. How do you take a creator who has an idea, who makes something of any kind and get them paid and get the participants paid and do it in a way that's verifiable and do it in a way that's immutable. And so as I started to learn more about the blockchain, I was like, oh, wait a second, that's 
that's exactly what that does. Like that, that thing is meant to do that very thing. And now the question is, you know, you see so many people who have done this successfully with like read at night media and people who've been able to, who've been able to build business around folks by taking advantage of the audience and the, the applicability of these new technologies. That's to me, the most interesting thing is how do you solve that old problem, empower creators and build lots of value for folks along the way. And the blockchain and its application just seems like a, a pretty interesting fit for that. What are some of the ways that you're thinking about, you know, in the next five years, applying that? Like, what are some of the things that you think are possible? What are some of the seeds that you're seeing now? Where does this all go? I think the interesting question becomes, if you look at the businesses that have been successful coming out of traditional entertainment, Hello Sunshine, Westbrook, Charles King and Macro, Skybound, if you look at the uh, you know, Robert Kirkman's company, Skybound, if you look at those companies and you see that it's in, in some way their success is dependent upon continued sales into the SBOD system, the qu- interesting question for me is how do you take the way that they've built their direct-to-consumer as- aspects of their business and, and supercharge that using some of this technology? Because they have the same set of administrative and cost constraints and concerns that related to MWM as well, right? They have all those same problems. So the question is, how do you take, you know, on one side of the river is traditional Hollywood who are trying, who, who see Beast Burgers, they're aware of that as a thing, right? And have had some success like Reese with her book club and some other aspects of that, but they understand that that's a big part of where growth exists for them. And on the other, on this side of the river, I'm going to put myself on, on this side of the river temporarily, like this side of the river where, where the, the creator economy and the folks particularly who are monetizing on YouTube first and going through that, like, you know, AdSense sponsorship, you know, merch arc. And then ultimately getting to the end of that and saying, okay, what do I do? What more do I do? To me, the question is, how do you apply these technologies and resources, capital as well, to help the folks on the Hollywood side of the river get beyond their, the point they're stuck at and the creators get beyond the point they're stuck at? And that combination of services and resources and capital and is an interesting alchemy. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. You know, I think Y Combinator has done a really interesting job with the the way that they do a very regular cadence of engaging a very specific set of things and output, you know, businesses they own a piece of, but also because they've provided, you know, value. I think the short, short version of it is it's much more like an F1 pit crew than it is like the IAC model where like this, this set of resources comes in quickly to give a specific professionalization of a set of opportunities with capital and then lets that thing go quickly in a way that affects value for everybody along the way. I'm just trying to figure out what the most effective version of that is. And the power of storytelling, I'm sure you've, you've been watching the F1 show on Netflix. And so that example is top of mind. And I mean, I think it, it just speaks to your point. From the, the capital side there, how do you think about that? Is that you know raising a fund that you then invest in? Or is it really saying like, hey, we're gonna help creators think about how to tokenize and raise money from their community because we think that that gives them all sorts of kind of buy-in that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get? I think that is exactly the question. I don't know the answer, honestly, is my is my honest answer. I think that there are best-in-class versions of that that exist, like the churning group who approach it entirely as an investment, but do so many other things for their founders and their teams. And yet there is obviously a, a, a tokenization aspect of this that's going to happen. And so my sense is that there will be a set of folks for whom tokenizing will be good, but not the complete answer. 
And so you'll, 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 you'll provide value by giving other resources and also other capital in the process. I've been fascinated by, you know, Sam Lesson's conversations about what, you know, investing in individual humans, which has a, a capital component, right? It's not just a tokenization, or I don't mean just a tokenization, but it's not a tokenization alone. So I think it's a combination of things is the somewhat longer answer. I just yeah. don't know exactly what that combination of things is, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm exploring. Essentially, before or kind of in the beginning of Not Boring, I was also thinking about an idea where you'd invest in Substack writers because I think a lot of people who got introduced to Substack or some other subscription model had this idea where you're like, oh, it's a steady cash flow. You can borrow money and invest in it and, and make a return. There's so little that a writer has to do or an individual podcast or whoever else that it's really hard to imagine selling a stake in your thing. But to your point, when you're adding, you know, a nationwide burger chain or merch or all these other more capital intensive things, it makes a lot of sense to take an injection of, of money. Are there other beyond Beast Burger, like other things that you see creators adding on that require those types of that, that F1 pit crew to come in and help out there? I think that the 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 traditional Hollywood space has a number of examples like this where there are there are, you know whether it's like Rihanna beauty or things that are where, where it really does require investment in a supply chain. It really does require investment in, you know, operational aspects of a thing. It's not all completely off the shelf yet. I think those, I think those have been interesting to watch. I think that what you touched on is ultimately the problem to solve, which is if you're a creator of any kind now, you are tracking the arc from labor to capital. And basically what you're, you're, you're starting out in front of a mic or in, in front of a keyboard or in front of a camera. And you're ult- what you ultimately want to arrive is ownership in something with terminal value that is distinct from your own effort that, you know, if you get you know, hit by a bus, you know, your family has value and your legacy exists long-term. And I think the role of whatever that F1 pit, pit crew is ultimately is to speed up the arc and sustainability of the movement from labor to capital for creators. And so what that looks like, that's what I'm trying to piece together. But that, I think that's ultimately the role for this, this thing to play. I thought, I mean, I've, I've obviously thought a lot about that, that concept of what happens if I get hit by a bus. Is, are you thinking more kind of, you know, things that are, that are adjacent to the things that they do now? Because that's the thing that I always think when I'm like, all right, cool, what else can I do with not boring? I'm like, gosh, if I try to professionalize the writing part, then the whole thing might fall apart. Like if it becomes too systematized, then maybe the whole thing loses its magic. How do you think about that as you're, as you're thinking about this idea? Yeah, that's the interesting question. And I think the, the, it's different for different creators, I think is the short answer. I think there are things... The, and, and actually the, the ex- exploration of how you built Not Boring and the pieces of it that you, the decisions you made along the way related to sponsorship and how to think about that. I think those are, those are smaller versions of the same question, right? Which is, you know, you're starting from a nucleus and you're building out from that. And what choices are you making along the way to do that? I think that it ultimately comes down to what is the goal of the individual creator at the end of the day? I think everyone would like some persistent terminal value of some kind, at, you know, but I think that's not achieved the same way across the board. And so I think where, where, where I do see commonality and theme is that, you know, your audience trusts you. You've built that trust bond with them. And that makes you an authentic authority in their mind. That means that you have applicability in other aspects of their life where you can deploy that. And that's happened in sponsorship. And it's happened very thoughtfully, I think, in the way you've intentionally 
done the deep dives on on sponsors, but done it in a way that's you know true to the way you're thinking about what builds value. It's a long way of saying I think there are um, ways to keep your own personal trust bond with your audience applied consistently along the way. And in some sense, the answer to whatever the next step is, is what's the thing that most authentically preserves that bond and continues to deliver them value, you know? And I, and I think that's different for all, I think that's different for all creators. And the fact, you know, in the case of Mr. Beast, like delivering burgers to people who love Mr. Beast, you know, yep, that's, you know, that's, that that's, and I also think actually, honestly, that that adherence to that sort of authenticity with your audience is, is not just important because it, it keeps the, the value chain going to them. I think it's also important because in the event that you do something that they don't love or, or, or you know, you're, you're, you're operating on, a, on an authentic basis with them. Like there's not, you know, you're not, it's not Packy's like golden Lamborghinis, you know, like, no, you know what I mean? Like there's not that, that's not the next step. And therefore you're not eroding that trust with them by taking those sort of steps that don't really align with how they expect to receive value from you. You think about underwriting an individual. Like, what if you know you invest and you put the pit crew around me, and then I do go sell golden Lamborghinis and just totally sell out, or I start just like shilling bad investment products, and like there's just a lot of kind of concentrated risk where there's not checks and balances around me like there would be in a company where I have employees who are just going to put their foot down and say, "No, I'm not going to do that." How do you think about that? I think that the paradigm has changed in the in the following sense. The, the Taylor Swift thing is really interesting to watch. The Dave Chappelle thing is really interesting to watch. What happened in both of those cases is that in effect, despite making deals that uh, on the surface they acknowledged and knew were, were business deals, what, what happened is ultimately they felt it was unfair and they appealed to their audience in different ways to say that I feel this is unfair. I'm not going to, to the counterparty I did the deal with, I'm going to you audience. To me, that's one of the most interesting trends to watch because I think that what that means is that when you talk about power to the person, I think there has never been more power concentrated in an individual creator ever. And as a result, what that means is if you took resources from an external party and then decided to you know, start shilling Lamborghinis or whatever, that would have to be something that that party who made that investment in you understood was a very real risk. And so I think that those resources now come with the understanding that you have to build that relationship with whoever that creator is and make sure that you have a good sense that they're not going to do something that's, that's wildly, you know, you know, that's widely different than what's created their success up to this point. But honestly, if they did, I don't think there's very much recourse. And I think you have to build your business model around the notion that that could, that likely will happen. Um, you're you're making a portfolio or... of, of bets yeah. I guess, at that point as well. Yeah. And if you're making that portfolio of bets, do you think about those, those bets, those people interacting with each other? Is there some sort of broader portfolio construction where you say, Hey, if we work with this person and this person, they might be able to work together in this way. Or are you really underwriting each person separately? I think you are underwriting each person separately because you can never you you can never prescribe that there's the alchemy of how people work together, particularly not when you know people are used to in this case having built the, not only done the creative aspect of the content, but they've these are all entrepreneurs, right? These are all people that you know built their business. So I think it's not a, a great bet to say you're going to prescribe exactly how they work together. But I think making them adjacent to one another and making them aware of one another. You know, there've been a lot of some. Great Craft comes to mind in particular 
when they in LA where they've their their events where they bring all their founders and CEOs together to 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 you know meet and say hi to one another. I don't think there's ever any prescription of exactly what they're supposed to do together, but the proximity to one another and the sort of common understanding they're there to help each other, I think is the is the is the lesson there. And I think that's the best you can do. If the world goes in the direction that you want and if you make that happen, what does it all look like in you know, a far out time frame where you don't have to worry about the practicalities of how you get there. Like, what does it look like in 20 years? Man, I don't honestly know. I think I honestly, you know, I think that people put out frames. Like, I mean, you have, you have thinkers like Elon Musk and others who are like, well, clearly, you know, in, in millennia, think who think in millennia, you know, and like, you know, but I think equally, if you think in millennia, but you, but you cast your eyes backward, you realize that the technological changes that have happened historically to us as humans over whatever it is, 10 or 15,000 years, whatever it is, have, have, we've had centuries to adjust to it. You know, up until the, cent- I mean, if you look at the, like from inception to date, you know, the, the, the volatility starting basically with like the industrial revolution, like that's a speck on the timeline relative to our, our, you know, the rest of the time we've had. And so what I think is, re- it's, I think it's, really hard to say what the world is going to look like in 20 years because i think we are just you know as humans we are not fundamentally built for this rate of change and so how this and, and you know web3 is and, and the application of crypto or, or blockchain technology is not something that was immediately obvious in the netscape days which on that same timeline is just like the tiniest little speck right it's like so i don't i don't know what i hope is happening is that when a creator like you or Mr. Beast, or John Favreau, or Reese Witherspoon decides that they're going to put themselves out in a way that they want to build a direct relationship with their audience, and they're willing to put in the work, and they're willing to to share the upside with their audience. That they have a path to do that. That is that rewards their ambition to do that, and the result is that consumers and humans get the sort of authentic storytelling that's kept us sort of bonded together over that whole timeline. That, that's what I hope happens. And I think the risk to that is that it, you end up with too fractionalized a process for creators to get there. And as a result, some version of aggregators become, you know, have play, play a much bigger role. I don't, in that case, I actually don't think the aggregators are going to win. I think technology and it is just too powerful at this point, but that would be, that'd be my concern. I, and I think that will, I think that's what will happen. I think ultimately creators will have that path. I just don't know under what circumstances. That's been one of the things that's, that struck me, particularly looking into DAOs, but just even in this whole exploration of, of Web3 is that it really feels like this new technology that's letting us get back to the natural way of things, but just on a global scale. So almost letting you get back to the way that you would have been in a local community, you know, a thousand years ago, but with anyone in the world. And it enables that kind of same small group connection and trust and all of those types of, of things. So I hope, I hope the world turns out in the positive way of, of what you're describing there. I think it will. And I, and I, and my own little sort of like weird anecdotal evidence of that is that, you know, having kids home on Zoom for the last year, you know, they have maintained their social connections largely through Roblox, largely through Fortnite, largely through things, you know, that are technological. And so, you know, on January 1st of 2020, if you had said, this is the readout for your kid's screen time, you know, 
I think everyone across the board would have said that's absurd. No way. That's, that's, in, that's simply going to be the most harmful th- year of their life. And instead, I think technology has proven that it actually has some, some connect, you know, some connectivity aspect to it that really is enduring. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out too. I mean, look at, look at this, right? Like just the fact that we're able to, to start up this relationship and have this conversation Yep. All because of the internet. And like, you know, this is what I hope is the first of many of these, because this has been fascinating and, and I'm really excited about what you're, what you're doing. I mean, the internet, the internet is a pretty magical place when, when you let it be. I agree. I, and, and I think it's the, the fact that you've been able to, you know, build the audience you have and the, and, and deliver the value you have is also an example of that, you know, and this it's people who get that in the morning and, and it materially changes their day. Like all, all, all because of what these tools have enabled us and you to be able to do. And that's, you know, that's a win for sure. Amen. Clint, this was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you again for winning the auction. And where can people, where, where can people find you? You know, my, I, I, as I was saying to you before we jumped on, I, I have, I have, I've just joined Twitter. So I'm at Clint Kisker at Twitter. I, I, so that's, that's, that's the, probably the primary place to do it. I will say one other thing quickly before we go, which is if you wanted to begin sponsored uh, smoke detector sales, <laughs> uh, as part of not boring, I'm, I'm pretty certain that your fan base would sort of approve that as like an authentic extension of, of your brand. Yeah. I, I pretend that none of this is calculated, but I am just trying to get that big, big it's, smoke detector money. It's, <laughs> it's so smart. Recognizing the smoke detector market and just, and, and like, if I just leave this on long enough, someone will demand a sponsorship. It's really I need, smart. I need an audio, an audio thing that people associate with me. And now whenever somebody hears the smoke detector, they're going to, yeah, exactly. it's that, yeah. I think the water pipes went for a little while during this. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. as, as the F1 pit crew comes in and, and kind of tightens up my podcast setup, then, then maybe this will improve. But until then, if you have a smoke detector company, give me a call. Have a great Perfect. week, everybody. Right, and thank you. Clint. Thank you.